Hello and welcome to the audio version of the 100% Wild Podcast, episode number 31. And today in the show we're joined by Tad Brown, a legendary callmaker and avid trapper. And we're discussing the impact predators can have on deer and other wildlife and how trapping can help manage those populations. And also, helping me and Matt with our hosting duties today is Mark Drury. So with that said, here's our in-studio interview. Alright, we are back with another episode of the 100% wild podcast i'm mark kenyon with wired hunt i'm matt drury with drury outdoors and today we actually have mark drew with us in the studio hi guys <laughs> how so, we doing good thanks for joining us this good. is awesome it's going to be a full house today too because we also have someone on skype right matt we do we have tad brown who uh has been very instrumental in i'd say the success of drury outdoors through the years mark knows him better than any of us, but uh, Tad was like having an, another uncle for me growing up. He's been there my whole life pretty much, so uh, without further ado, maybe we can bring Tad on with us. How you doing, buddy? Good, man. How are you guys? We're good. We're good, Tad. <clears throat> I wanted to start out and maybe... Appreciate you having me. Yeah, I wanted you to kind of give us a little backstory of the early days with Mad Calls and Mark in particular, because you, you have... Probably outside of Tracy and, and, and Taylor and Terry, you might know Mark as well as anyone. Well, I know him pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I've, we, we hunted together for several years before we started the company and and then spent a lot of time with him. And um, <laughs> he, he's a hoot. Yeah, Tracy, when we in the infancy of the company, he was still repping. So, so I lived with him and Tracy for... Well, he could tell you to the day and the hour probably, but it was a couple of years anyway. To me, I say a couple of years. My wife says three. Mark may say four or five. I don't know. I know it was too long. I I wore my welcome out. But uh, I was there till Tracy got pregnant with uh, Taylor, and then it was time for me to get out. And by that time, we had we had procured a, a bigger – we had outgrown the basement or the garage – that's pretty cool. Mark, what do you remember of those days? Oh, that's, uh, you know, you said he was an uncle. That's because he's like a brother to Terry and I. Yeah. And, you know, without uh, Terry's relationship with Ken Jones, I don't know that I would have met Tad because at the time, Terry was doing some real estate development with a gentleman by the name of Ken Jones. I don't know if you remember Ken or not. Yep, remember him well. And Tad was subsequently guiding Ken on turkey hunts out around Truman Lake. Wow. And that's, you know, Ken always talked about, oh, Tad Brown, he's the best caller, oh, Tad. You know, me being a younger man at the time, I was thinking, well, he can't be that good, you know. (laughs) And uh, we met then at some calling contests probably, when did we meet, Tad? 86-ish, maybe? 87? Yeah, I'm not not sure, but he... He kind of tricked you into coming down. Yes, he did. <laughs> and and I he brought you with him to one of my, our guided hunts or and and he kept telling me about you. I mean, he was telling you like I was this guy in bibs, I was like a Daniel Boone and <laughs> and you were this young up and coming caller and I don't think either one of us were too eager to meet the other necessarily. <laughs> but he tricked you into coming down, you and John, your your college buddy. And anyway, we we did hit it off and and uh anyway yeah we we owe ken a, or i do for darn sure a you know debt of gratitude for getting us together yeah we remain we got close there that first hunt remained close and then i started mad in the summer of 93 and um i wanted one guide 
to head that up mm-hmm. and it was tad and i i can safely say there would not be the mad brand today if not for tad we should have called it tad calls in the, <laughs> in the early days as opposed to mad calls <laughs> you know so in those early years you had um you guys obviously worked really closely together, and Tad was instrumental in development of a lot of those calls with you, correct? All of them. Yeah. Every product in the Mad Line wow. to present day, Tad spearheaded the, the development of all of them. So uh, he's, he has a great track record. He's probably the best product guy in, in our industry right now. So, Tad, when you <clears throat> look to put a new product together, something that's never been done before or something maybe that's been done before that you're trying to put a new twist on, I mean, what is your process to, I mean, I, I can't fathom that. That's just not something that's in my realm to think of something and then to develop it, build it, and then come out, you know, manufacture it. Well, well, number one, Mark you know, Mark is, he's hands down the best turkey hunter I've ever been around. And I've, I've hunted with a lot of them. I've hunted with Preston Pittman, Dick Kirby. They're all great hunters, but, and, but Mark, he can make a turkey gobble when he really don't want to. And the key, the key is high frequency. And Mark has always hung his hat on high pitched, high frequency. So I guess I, I look like today, back then it was easier today. It's harder. Today, I look at the market. I see what's out there. I'm like, what can we do differently? But I always target that real high pitch. Like most of the, the mad products had a higher pitch, the box calls, the friction calls, because Mark recognized early that that higher pitch pulls more gobbles. You know, don't necessarily make them respond better, but it makes them gobble better, which, you know, equates to, a, you know, a, a more pleasant hunting experience, whether you kill him or not. But it also makes him gobble more so you can keep track of him. So anyway, once I mean, I, you know, I've literally just built prototypes and Mark's seen a bunch of them. They were pretty, you know, Neanderthal, if you will. But the concept was there. And then, you know, if it's something Mark agreed with or he liked, then we would fine tune it, you know, and then we would go to, you know, outside vendors you know, in the wood side, if it was, a, you know, to CNC it, if it was a wood product or, or, you know, an injection molding company or whatever to build us tools on it once we finally got it to that finalized stage. The, the, but, but initially, you know, initially it was, it was a concept and then we made prototypes and it was field proven. That was one thing. We hunted with everything a year or two prior to putting it in the line. So it was field tested. It was much easier, Tad, before engineers got involved, wasn't it, though? I mean, we could come up with what we wanted, you know, and we could get it built. And then I sold MAD in 1997 to an investment banking group out of Kansas City, and we joined forces with the boys down there at Lowman and API and several other other major brands. And they always wanted everything engineered, you know, and Tad and, Tad and his engineer buddies didn't always get along or see eye to eye, but it was much easier before they were involved wasn't it tad oh absolutely i mean those engineers they they go to school and they're all taught process and you know i i was just a i don't know an old hillbilly kid and my dad back in the day i never will forget i told him dad i need a box call and he's like well let's go out in the shop see what kind of wood we got and i'm like no i got one picked out you know down there at the sporting goods store i you know i want to buy and he goes he goes, if you need a box call, he said, we'll just build one. He said, he said, money don't grow on trees. So <laughs> that was my approach. I, 
I made everything myself, my strikers, my first box calls that I had, I had made myself. And this engineering process, the, you know, the processes, the stages, the gates, man, I didn't have any use for that stuff. I could, I could get a product to market 10 times faster just doing it than doing all the process and the meetings. But, mm. you know, corporate America today, they all, they all have a process. And these engineers, you know, they got a job to do, so. No offense to any of the engineers listening or <laughs> yeah, watching. <laughs> Ted, is there is there any single product over the years that you've worked on and developed, or Mark, either one of you, that stands out as the one that you're most proud of, or that really turned out to be the ultimate, whatever it was you were creating, that you really it came to fruition just the way you wanted to? You know, prob- probably one of them would be uh, our Super Illuminator, um, and I guess other companies or one other company had tried aluminum in the few in the past but I and I didn't know that but I had we had a little manufacturing company across the interstate from where we were that did uh, packaging for us and I was over there one day and I was always tinkering like I said earlier and Mark had given me a new slate call uh, you know a high-end one out of the industry and I couldn't run the darn thing and I was out and I so I had got some sheets scrap sheets of aluminum from this manufacturing place and i'd cut them out you know and and sanded them down and put them in some pots we had and glued them and i was trying to run it mark come out there and he goes let me show you how to run that call because i was having trouble and then he's like well what do you got here and i go i'm just playing with this so i never will forget we went out the back door of the garage and he started running that thing, and his eyes kind of lit up, and the dogs in the neighborhood started barking, and, I mean, it was bouncing <laughs> off your ears. Anyway, that was kind of where the super illuminator come from. But then we, again, we got with a guy who produced a pot for us, specially designed a pot acoustically to complement the aluminum. And then, you know, there's several grades of aluminum. We we just happened to pick the, the right grade right out of the box. And, and anyway, then mark with his marketing abilities and how to run it you know he he pitched that thing and and we did quite well with it and to this day i probably get more comments about our mad super illuminator than any other call no question in turkey it is a super illuminator in deer it was the buck growl you know those two products were signature to that mad line that first first year that buck growl we sold over a quarter million pieces of that that one call (laughs) that's incredible Mm -hmm. conversely which was the biggest fail (laughs) (laughs) that's a good question (laughs) call maker (laughs) call maker i thought the call maker was going to do gangbusters and we started the company with that and we ended up selling less than 500 oh really yeah you can make make each diaphragm yourself it was a little aluminum press that we had pretty neat cnc it's pretty cool pretty cool matt van size found one on a shelf not long ago so it was still sitting there i said i replied back i said they need some inventory control processes because that was 1995 we didn't sell them after 95 and it was still sitting there for sale on a on a shelf (laughs) i think it's been sitting there 20 some years a little dusty (laughs) so yeah but today we still have people asking about that call maker where can i find one now the carbonator box call i don't have anybody asking for that what about the the, the dog whistle? Because that's the one I hear about the most. I feel like the dog whistle. Well, because we touched so many different people with it, it was a call we called dead silence. Dead silence. It uh, it hit frequencies that were inaudible to humans, but yet would make turkeys gobble. But we probably didn't do the best job of teaching people how to tune it. So therefore, they had they were met with a lot of. Uh, 
a failure in the woods and they weren't getting turkeys to gobble back at it hmm. and um but you sold a lot of them no, we right? sold a pile of them forty thousand yeah. the yeah. first year twenty one thousand straight to the consumer with one telephone line yeah Jeez. we sold twenty one thousand straight out of the package we had to hire a company to ship them all it, it literally swamped us um mm. because the demand was so high for them so but there was definitely frustration amongst the consumer with that product because it was they were tough to tune and um they just had some failure in, in the field yeah hmm well, yeah, it, and it was a love hate product. Either people loved it or yeah, they hated it. L- yeah. Literally, I had a guy come to Cross at Arkansas. I was doing the seminar down there, and there was probably three or four hundred people there that day. And I did the seminar, and I kept everyone was sitting through the seminar, but there was one gentleman at the back end of the of the auditorium, and he just stood there through the whole thing. And uh, I spoke for an hour, took questions for probably 30 minutes, and I j- he just kept catching my eye because he wouldn't take his eye off of me. <laughs> and uh, he finally, at the end of the seminar, people were starting to filter out, and he walked all the way up, and he was holding that dead silence as he came. And he goes, I drove four hours to stick this up your butt. <laughs> 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 I thought I was going to die that day and cross it. But uh, I, got, I ended up showing him how to tune it, and we oh. ended up becoming friends out of that. So. Wow. But uh, I'll never forget that gentleman coming and said i drove four hours to come over and stick this up your butt that's amazing <laughs> it was only how much was it tab was like 9.99 or was it yes yes it was 9.99 9.99 but he wanted his ten dollars but i think i gave him ten dollars too oh man <laughs> well well on that note matt has been telling me tad about your skills not only as a call maker but also as a trapper and uh as we do on every one of these episodes, we like to answer a listener-submitted question. Today, though, we're going to answer, or hopefully, you will answer a host-submitted question. So uh, should we do that question of the day? Absolutely. So, Tad, I'll be the, the host submitting the question today. And like I said, I've heard you've got a lot of background with trapping. And we, you know, me and Matt were just talking earlier today about the fact that we've both been seeing coyotes popping up on trail camera. I think you said you saw like five of yeah. them coming across. And I think a lot of people are dealing with that, <clears throat> seeing that across the country. So my first question for you is based on your experience, what kind of impact have you seen predators like coyotes making on deer populations? Is that something we really need to be concerned about? And then secondly, can trapping help with that and how so? Uh, Yes, the answer is yes to both of those. Um, And, you know, here in the Midwest, we think we have a lot of coyotes and we're getting a lot. But compared to the West, we don't have any coyotes. And, you know, I, I talk to people back east, and they're like, oh, the coyotes are tearing us up. The southeast is getting pretty hammered with them. But I, one, one incident that really drove this fact home for me was a couple of years ago, a, a friend of mine in Georgia knew a guy who had a trail camera on a coyote den. And for in 21 days, they brought 20 fawns to that den. Wow. So that is a huge impact on a deer herd um and coyotes i know um i know mark terry and don kiske and i were in kansas one time and uh don and terry filmed a pair of coyotes pursuit i mean it's this is september early muzzleloader season and you know we're deer hunting bean fields and and the acorns are just starting to fall and uh you know there's still grasshoppers and lots of young rabbits the coyotes are not hurting for something to eat but yet they single out a small buck and they pursue him and one of them is on his tail trailing him while the other one flanks him and these guys watched it all and finally once they wore that deer down the flanking coyote comes in and hits him broadside which turned out to be the male 
grabbed that thing by the throat and pushed away with its feet, wow. you know, to hold that tension there while the female come in and literally started at the guts and gutted him alive. The next morning, they said there was nothing but bone and hair there. Wow. So they can, a pair of coyotes, that was just a male and a female. They probably still had some pups, but they were feeding that family. So when it comes to feeding their families, just like you or I, you know, we get, there's, you know, we might get pretty serious about what we might do to feed them. So with that said, they are a huge threat to our wildlife. You know, like, like our bobcat population now is at an all-time high. And I think that it is solely due, I mean, partly in management by our departments, you know, our conservation departments, but I think it's a lot to have to do with it is our turkey population is so big that they can feed those bobcats. I mean, you know, that's where we trap bobcats and we call them as along waterways. Well, that is normally where a turkey roosts, as close to water as he can, he's got to have water. And those turkeys know that. And over the years, I've seen so many trail pictures of turkeys in the field. And then in the foreground, there's a bobcat sitting there. My nephew had a picture the other day of a bunch, a flock of turkeys. And I was looking at it, and I'm like, well, what is that? And I zoomed in, and there was a bobcat. I mean, he is literally feet from these turkeys. So the next photo I was hoping to see where he had caught one, not, not to kill the turkey, but just to see the action. I didn't. But if he didn't catch one, it was his own fault. <laughs> So, um, and then the fur price deal is, is killing us as far as our, you know, our deer and our turkeys and our rabbit and quail population. I, I think the quail population, we can blame mostly on herbicides and loss of habitat in this country. But, but again, quail are, I mean, this just like a house cat catching a mouse. I mean, it's, it's a gravy deal for them to do. They're su- such efficient hunters. But the more, the, the lower fur prices are, nobody wants to trap, nobody wants to take fur, you know, spend the time because they don't want to mess with it. But it is the, solely the only tool other than Mother Nature that, that we can use to control those numbers and to protect your, your turkeys and your deer on your properties. So when you go about predator control, is, what's your favorite method? Is it trapping or is it, you know, going out and, and calling and and, and and shooting one well i think i think trapping is probably more effective and quicker um the the conservation department here they they call me lots of times you know whether they have predator you know a farmer has a coyote kill a calf or or even otters eating fish in their ponds you know those type of things if you're a fisherman that's predation on your fish population guys spend some tremendous amount of money you know, on catfish and bass to stock their ponds. And then you get a, you know, a, a family of river otters come in and man, they'll, they, they work on them fast because they swim. I mean, they catch the, they're fast enough. They catch those fish while they're swimming and then they eat them. They gorge themselves on them. So, but anyway, I effectively trapping to me is the most effective um, because you can target, you know, a certain area. Now, just because you kill one or two coyotes or you catch one or two, that doesn't necessarily solve your problem. But every coyote that you take out of the population is, you know, one less critter that's going to be pursuing your, your whitetails. Um, a friend of mine here, fairly local, um, he had never done the cables, which is a type of snaring. And I was helping him learn how to do that a few years ago. And his second year 
on one 40 acre piece he caught right at 30 coyotes it was just below or just above but they all were on that 40 acre piece and i i really if it wasn't if i didn't know the guy i don't know that i would have believed that story but he did it again the next year on the same piece of ground so it, you know, it's probably like deer. You only, you know, if you've got the right tree, you can kill all the big bucks you want year after year in that one tree on one acre of ground. You don't need 500. Well, this is one of those areas where all of those coyotes were either funneling through, and as you take them out, more coyotes fill that void. Unfortunately for him, that's a bad, deep, bad yeah, break. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so for someone who wants to try to start using some type of trapping as a, as a management practice, I mean, I know there's a lot to it, but what are some of the core things that someone new to this needs to find out? Or what are the core things someone needs to focus on to get started? Well, um, trapping is like for coyotes. I mean, nowadays they've got what they call a coon cuff and, uh, you literally bait them and you can lay them on the ground and, you know, anchor them at some point you have to anchor them and coons walk up and put their hand in them and it catches them and they're, they can't get to their hand. It causes them no damage, and they're dog-proof. I mean, basically, you're targeting coons. And those are real easy to set, real easy to maintain, and they're very effective. And, of course, coons are very hard on turkey nests and quail nests. They're probably the worst on turkeys, to be honest. But when you when you graduate up to coyotes, it gets a little more intense. I mean, you got you got to buy new – I mean, if you get new traps, you got to – you know, get the grease off of them. You got to treat them, uh, you know, wax them to make them faster and to protect them and to get the scent off of them. And then it, it takes quite a lot of equipment. So, I mean, I, I promote trapping at every opportunity. I take kids and if you either, some people like it and they got it and some people don't care for it. It's like any sport, but, um, probably the best thing to do would be, I mean, YouTube is full of how to videos, but the best thing is to, you know, get with a trapper's organization and go to one of their clinics and they do demos to show you how to set the traps and they usually have all those supplies for sale. If you if you contact your local conservation agent or game warden, in most cases they have an individual like myself that will come and show you how to do that or trap them for you or both. But, but um, and we also have what we call damage control agents in Missouri and what they do is they come out and they set these traps for you. You tend to them, and then they teach you, they train you how to run them. So it, it can be quite intense, but it's a great, it's a great sport. Yeah. We're, we're actually working on a piece in the studio right now for DOD TV, a trapping piece. Uh, <clears throat> Jared Lurk, and I think you had a, a guy that Jared knew. It's Jared's friend, yeah. It's Jared's friend, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and yeah. he went out and, and uh, we, we produced a, a whole – because he's a police officer by trade. Yeah. <clears throat> but we went out and produced a whole piece with him. Yeah, uh, he's always hunting predators by day. Yeah, night, yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> and it, it's very interesting. Jake's working on it right now, actually. We, I, I think it'll be up maybe end of the week this week or early next week. But it's it's very interesting what all goes into it. And we work, I think we're going to split it into two sections. One about the trapping, like you're talking about all the process that goes into it. But then one about also just the fur side of it as well. Cool. So Awesome. It's yeah. going to be a good piece. Tad, this is way off the subject, but I saw this the other day. We had posted a little montage of a bunch of eagles that came to a couple gut piles. 
that uh, we've killed during the late season. And I don't know, at one time there's seven, eight, nine eagles on these gut piles. I don't know if you saw that piece or not, Tad, but I noticed in the comments people were talking about how thick the eagles are getting and how devastating they are on the turkey population and other uh, you know, sure. game populations. <clears throat> Have you ever thought of that, or what's your thoughts on that, Tad? I had never considered it till that time because when I see an eagle, I'm always honored and I think that's pretty cool. But yeah. I'm seeing a lot of eagles anymore. Do you think that they'll have any effect on the game populations as they continue to grow? Uh, I think they they could, but like like you, I was always honored to see an eagle. They're majestic. They're our national symbol, um, and they're beautiful. But pop everybody's bubble an eagle is just a pretty vulture is all he is he's a scavenger um and, and that's why he was on your gut pile if a, if an eagle can find a roadkill deer or a you know a dead animal or a gut pile or whatever or carcass pile like like when i'm trapping coons i might have 60 to 100 coon carcasses in a pile down here in my pasture and you ought to see the eagles hanging around there eagles hawks and they're you know they're scavenging that they're eating those carcasses which is is great but uh, as far as, and they're very efficient at catching fish, but I, I don't see or hear much about them on, you know, targeting games. So I, no, I would say presently they don't, they don't, they're not a threat to our turkey population. I'd say probably in the right scenario they would. Again, um, eagles, eagles nest or they, they hang around here in the wintertime and then they kind of disperse, but as those populations grow, like you said, they are getting to be more resident eagles that stay here. Hmm. Um, if you'll remember our good friend Ronnie Brown, I know in Texas one time he was sitting over a feeder. They were deer hunting, and some turkeys were there, and a golden eagle come down and nabbed one of those turkeys. So, yes, it, it can happen. I don't think it's a big deal, though. Okay, good. Personally. Interesting. Yeah, very interesting. I saw the comment, and I was like, <laughs> I had never considered that, you know? Yeah. So, I, to your point of seeing more and more recently, we were we were driving home from uh, the Missouri rifle season, Yapper and myself, and <clears throat> we were coming up on Highway 6 there, coming back from Dad's place. And I saw this, like you could tell something, you know, was dead, roadkill or whatever, and like it looked like a statue standing over this thing. And by the time we got up to it, sure enough, it was a bald eagle, and it wasn't 15 feet from the road, and he never – we didn't scare him one bit. I mean, he was just standing there staring at us. It was just crazy. I never thought of him as a vulture, kind of like what Tad's saying there. But sure enough, that's what he was doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Back to the uh, to the predator thing, Mark, mm-hmm. I'm curious, on your properties, have you had any issues with predators? Have you had to do any management yourself or bring in someone to help? We do have issues with them. And, and the uh, game cameras show how, how deep that issue runs. Um, bobcats got nailed a couple winters ago, maybe three or four, and they're just now coming back. We had some deep snows in February that, that lasted for, I don't know, several weeks, and it seemed to really hurt the bobcat population. They're just now coming back. Uh, coyotes, however, man, are they thick. And um, we're starting to do some trapping, but we're always on that tightrope between affecting deer movement that we're trying to uh, harvest, yeah. you know, for what we do versus the correct predator control. And it's, it's a hard tightrope to walk, you know, because you, to trap effectively, you got to get in there, man, you know, and that, that just flies in the face of everything we do with non-intrusive deer hunting, you know, point. so it's, it's tough. 
Um, the Iowa season for deer doesn't end till January the 10th. Well, the trapping season only goes till the end of the month, so, yeah. or maybe even <clears throat> shorter than that. So um, I've got to do something, though, and I'm talking to this friend of Jared's, and Gary LaVox actually introduced me to a guy that came and trapped his place and just wiped his population out or really did a good job. So um, I'm going to do more and more of it. Now, I'm not a passionate trapper or caller, and mostly because of time. Um, but I, I've definitely got to address it because they're they're just thick. I yeah. mean, there's so many. I mean, I have pictures of groups of seven and eight and nine on Oof. my farms, you know. So, uh, and you find a lot of, a lot of dead deer in the spring. So I've got to start addressing it more. And frankly, it's you know, uh, I've never been one to to trap. As I said, not that I dislike it, just don't have time. But because of that. I'm starting to see an imbalance, you know, and I've, I've got to I've got to address that. And I assume eventually, Mother Nature, much like with the deer population, you have EHD and diseases mm-hmm. like that that take them down. You know, I keep hoping my population would get the mange and <laughs> really, really <laughs> trim them down, but that hasn't ha- happened yet. Yeah, interesting. Speaking of uh, of timing, uh, Tad, is there a specific season? Well, is there a specific time of year that trapping or predator control can be the most effective? I've heard some different thoughts on this when the right time is to maximize the number of coyotes killed just before fawning season or something like that. Is there some truth to that? Um, should we be considering timing when it comes, when it comes to all this? Yeah. And, and Mark, Mark is right. I mean, when, when the trapping season is open and fur is prime, cause I'm a, I'm a fur harvester first, you know, I, I trap because I'm infatuated with fur. I like to to skin the animals and I process the fur and then I take it to market and sell it. But otherwise, you know, you gotta, you gotta keep those numbers in check, but the winter time when they're hungrier and food is more scarce coincides with the deer season. I mean, Terry's always like, you know, Tasmo come up and trap my coyotes. Well, what I want to and can, he's like Mark <laughs> said, they're still chasing deer. And the last thing they want is me running around, you know, <laughs> trapping coyotes or whatever. So, um, another great time, and I'm, I'm not a huge advocate of it just because I'm a fur harvester, but when those coyotes are denning in the spring, your government trappers and your old trappers of the day who are really controlling them for the feet, the sheep associations and stuff, they, they locate those dens and they dig those dens up and they literally, you know, take them, remove them pups and dispose of them. And, you know, they kill the, the family too, the pair. Um, like I was saying, Mother Nature is, um, I've got a book that I read one time and in years where there's lots of, lots of food, you know, like if it's a rainy year and we got lots of mice, lots of lush grass, those coyote, um, those pups, they might have, those litters will be nine, 10 coyotes, but in years where there's not a lot of feed, they may only have three or four, but somehow Mother Nature knows how to do that. So, this is not going to go away. And like Mark said, mange will hit them, and it will wipe them out, but they but they rebound pretty quickly. So it's a this harvesting of them is going to be an ongoing thing where you're going to have to – you can't just go in and catch six or eight coyotes off a farm this year and then say, I'm good. you got to continue with it. But uh, I'd say during that spring pup season when they're feeding pups and they got pups, including the pups, that's a good time to work on numbers. Otherwise, it's wintertime when, you know, when they're hungry and they're on the move. 
Have you noticed <clears throat> with the fur prices going down that it's starting to become kind of a lost science, so to speak? You know, it's not as many people doing it, and the, the younger generations aren't, aren't being brought up learning how to do it. Do you see a little bit of that? Yeah, I was at a... I was at our state uh, spring trappers meeting weekend before last, and they were they reported, you know, the membership now versus what it was about four years ago when our fur prices were, were up. And we're, I don't know, our membership was down almost 50%. Wow. And it was all based on, you know, fur prices. I mean, you got a few diehards like me that's going to go catch a little of this and that anyway, just to say I'm trapping. I mean, Typically, that's what I use most of my vacation for is trapping. But the the fur, you know, but also, you know, back, I don't know, late 70s, early 80s, if you found a, a big raccoon on the road, you could pick him up, drop him by the fur buyer, and sometimes you'd get a $40 out of him, and you wouldn't even have to skin him. Hmm. So, you know, back then, fur was huge. And, you know, a couple of years ago, I was getting 90 bucks for otters. And I know a buddy of mine, he found two dead on the road side by side and he just took them to the fur buyer on the carcass and they paid him well so when you got when you got otters that are bringing 90 that you know guys are like you know hey especially you know guys who maybe work in construction that are laid off in the winter they're like man i'm gonna buy a license and i'm gonna trap make a little money so fur prices definitely dictate the the amount of people after them and the impact on them what dictates the fur price it's usually other countries' economy. It's usually all about economy. I mean, um, you know, we went through the, a deal here in the States where people were protesting fur and they'd even spray paint a lady's fur coat, that sort of thing. That seems to have gone away. Um, I, I still run into some ladies in the airport wearing fur. It's fairly popular here in the States, but in, in countries like China and Russia where the winters get bitterly cold, it's what they call utilitarian fur. I mean, they wear a fur coat because there's nothing else out there like it that provides the warmth. Hmm. You know, there's no man-made material that provides the warmth and the comfort of a fur coat. So the people, you know, you've, you know, the Russian hats are real, the fur hats are real popular in Russia. Well, that's not, that's not necessarily a style. That's, that's because that's the warmest hat they can buy. Plus they look really nice. Hmm. So, but you know, our, you know, the, what's going on with Russia right now, their economy's not great. Um, th- a few years ago, China's economy was so good, I was seeing pictures. They were, your toilet paper roller were fur-covered. You could buy fur-covered, you know, towel racks and <laughs> toilet paper, co- you know, holders. And, they and you know, fur is a, is a sign of luxury in China. So they embrace that. Why didn't you ever introduce that into the Mad Line? Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I feared for my job. I knew you'd put a boot in my tail. We could have sold hundreds and hundreds. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I feel like we've got at least some, some basic principles laid out here to get people set up. And I think, at least from my perspective, I think predators are fascinating animals. They're wildlife just like deer or turkeys. And they deserve a place in the landscape, but at the same time, they need to be managed just like anything else. And to your point, Tad, there isn't as much demand or there aren't as many hunters or trappers anymore as there used to be focused on those types of things. So, you know, we do need to try to make an effort to to be able to control that in some way if we want to continue seeing deer populations, turkey populations, and all those things being in balance. I think that's a key thing is balance. So hopefully this intrigued a few people to uh, to look into it more. And 
if there were people that wanted to learn more, Tad, do you have any resources that you found really helpful when it comes to this kind of thing to learn or get into it? Where could people go to, to get started? Well, like I mentioned before, YouTube is a great tool. Um, you can, you know, you can just Google, you know, trapping otters and there'll be dozens of YouTube clips come up. A lot of them are just guys running their traps and, the, and they don't really tell you how, but you can learn on there. There's a lot of, there's a lot of books out there. Um, you know, and then again, these trapping associations, all of them, every state has one and they have what they, you know, they have banquets and they have little demos. So, you know, I would get a hold of the game warden and say, Hey, when's my, when is our state trapping association going to do a demo? We, our state's divided into districts and you know we each district usually does a demo and it's you know you might have a guy talking about how to trap coyotes and another guy how to trap uh, muskrats or something like that but i that's what i would do i would urge you know with the computer with the internet all you got to do is type that those questions in and you there's books there's some great dvds out there now and there's a lot of youtube clips but i i would encourage every landowner to buy a few of what they call these dog proof traps and if nothing else take their kid out there you stick a marshmallow down the bottom of them squirt a little maple syrup or honey in them and catch some raccoons let their kid experience it take them to the fur buyer let him make a few bucks and you know it's a great management tool because raccoons skunks and possums kind of the three easiest to trap animals are deadly on eggs especially turkey eggs quail eggs pheasant eggs duck eggs those type of things they're hard on wildlife i know when we we were for a while there we had some predator madness dvds we did. and tad was always on them and louis Payne did a couple trapping segments where he was it was pretty detailed on the steps that he was taking if i recall i don't remember which you know, I think there was three or four of those Predator Madness DVDs. I don't remember which ones those specifically were on, but it might be a good idea to to revisit those it, and perhaps launch one on DoD TV on YouTube yeah. and gain a whole new audience for yeah. that uh, that information. Yeah, absolutely. So I know Louie always did a really good job of detailing mm-hmm. how he was going through it because it's it can be just based on what I've seen, it can be very tedious work. You know, just sterilizing all the equipment and. Um, getting everything prepared and then checking your traps and all that stuff. So if you're going to get into it, you better be prepared to, you know, to, to put some time and effort into it and to do it right. And as with every sport, you better have the budget to yeah. sustain it. At yeah. least you can make a little money back with this one. Yeah. It's hard to do it with turkey or deer or anything else. <laughs> this one at least has a return on investment. Yeah, you're not mountain a no. coyote. <laughs> well, anything else we want to cover, guys? I think we covered it pretty well. Tad? One other one other note is we, we really didn't talk about predator calling, but like like Mark was just saying, you know, be prepared to spend some money to get geared up for trapping. But you know, most most deer hunters and turkey hunters have a shotgun or a deer rifle, and those are both effective for taking coyotes. And and today, really, all a guy's got to do you can buy a a ten or fifteen dollar hand call, or you can buy a hundred dollar electronic that's very effective. But Instead of, you know, if you don't want to get into the trapping deal, you can take your kids out or yourself and, you know, you can call in the wintertime when, in the off season. It's a good, you know, when, when deer season's over and you're waiting until turkey season, a lot of these guys get cabin fever and there's nothing to hunt. Well, that's a good time to go out there and call a few coyotes 
And coon, you can even call raccoons. Everything responds to a certain call. Again, you can research that on YouTube. But I, you know, I would suggest not only trapping, but also doing some supplemental calling to to help reduce those numbers. I mean, every one you take out is one less you got to deal with. Here's a point we haven't made, and I, I think that it's a valid point because a lot of the, the listeners and, and viewers are deer hunters. But I'll be willing to bet a trapper to have a chance at access to private land quicker than a deer hunter would, which could be the gateway to deer hunting permission, which yeah. you, you get that question a lot. I know you do, Mark. It's like, what can I do? Well, nobody likes coyotes, man. Yeah. And, and nobody likes predators. If you went in and said, and I'm that way in Iowa, you know, you know, I, I, I host a lot of people to deer hunt, but I'm wide open to trappers and coyote hunters. And it might be the gateway to long-term permission, Mark. That is a great point. So that might be the best reason to take it up if you're a passionate deer hunter. Not only are you helping the population, you might be helping yourself with some access you otherwise wouldn't wouldn't have gained. Yeah, get your foot in the door. I've, I've used that with shed hunting. That's a great way to get your foot in the door, and I can see this would work the same way. So there you go. I think that's great advice. Well, with that, Tad, thank you so much for joining us. I think this has been Absolutely. super helpful. Appreciate you guys having me. And if Absolutely. you come up with any more good stories about Mark – Feel free to let us know. We'll have you back on. I got one quick one if you got time for we it. We got time. <laughs> okay. All right. Mark is on the road selling product as a rep, and I'm living there at his place with Tracy. And we've got Jason Morrow, old hoss, one of our uh, distributors' employees who had come in to help us. And we're down there. It's 1 o'clock in the morning or something. We're building pot calls. We're gluing them up and stacking them. And we – it's late and we're getting about half slap silly and we've got 40 or 50 of these pot calls, you know, all stacked up and old hoss, he's kind of like a bull in a China closet and he leans down on the table and this whole pile of pot calls just crashes down. And it, it sounds like a bunch of glass falling, you know, or something. <laughs> and I had just got anyway, home off this, the road. So I had trying to get some sleep. I just can't, I just got home off the road. So I was there. Right. Right, makes a hellacious commotion. Anyway, yeah, like Mark said, he was there that particular night, and he'd been gone. Anyway, we're like, oh, crap, you know, and we were, he, Hoss was laughing like a little girl. Anyway, we hear the stairs, boom, 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 boom. The door flies open, and Mark is standing there, nothing but he skivvies, and he goes, please, thank you. Shuts the door and then bump, 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 bump. <laughs> Anyway, I love that story. I mean, the poor guy was trying to catch some rest, and it must have sounded like a bomb went off below him. <laughs> Please. Thank you. Thank you. Ever get polite, the, like get, Ralph. Get the heck <laughs> out. <laughs> Go home. No, it's time to stop building pot calls. It's 1 a.m. I was yeah. going to say, we knew it was time to. Give her I, up, go to bed. I was going to say, I guess you couldn't go home because you were sleeping there. Yeah. <laughs> that was your that's home. That's right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, good stuff, Ted. Thanks again. And we're just going to give our listeners and viewers quick reminders here. On my end, of course, if you'd like to listen to the audio version, you can subscribe on the podcast app on your iPhones 
or the Stitcher or Google Play app on your Android phone, and you can submit a question for future episodes over at wiredtohunt.com slash 100% wild. As always, you can check out the video version of this podcast on the Drury Outdoors YouTube channel. And, you know, as we were talking about it, we have so many original DOD TV episodes or Throwback Thursday episodes. So we're going to have the uh, Predator episode that we were talking about that uh, Jared's friend, the police officer. And we're also going to try to put up some of these Throwback Thursdays, maybe Louis Payne trapping, maybe it's Tad... uh, uh, out doing a little predator control. So be sure to check that out. As always, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and juryoutdoors.com. Thanks for listening.